All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn in them to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, as we continue on looking at the book of Revelation together here on Sunday morning. So the title of my message this morning is A Light in the Darkness. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you're just uh, engulfed in a darkness that is so ominous that you can't see your hand in front of your face, that it is almost oppressive, it is so dark? Growing up, one of my favorite stories was, of course, Tom Sawyer. I loved Tom Sawyer, written by a man named Mark Twain. Now, I say that because some may not be familiar with the story of Tom Sawyer. But growing up, my dad saw my infatuation. I read the story. I would watch various uh, depictions of it. And one of my favorites was on a show called Family Classics. Does anybody remember Family Classics here in Chicago with Fraser Thomas? Okay, I'm really dating myself. Some people are like, really? I didn't even know they had TV back then, you know. My mom and dad saw that I enjoyed the story so much that they took us on a summer trip to Hannibal, Missouri. And there in Hannibal, Missouri is, of course, where Samuel Clemens, who, of course, is Mark Twain, grew up. And there were the famous caves in which he explored as a kid that, of course, made it into his stories. And while we were touring those caves, which were awesome, it's a great trip, I'd encourage you to do it, the tour guide took us to a place within the caves and then turned off all of the lights. I mean, it was so dark and creepy because all of a sudden you heard these flapping of wings. And my mom goes, oh, there must be birds in here. And the tour guide said, no, that's not birds. And we were all like, great, we're all going to come out vampires. You couldn't see your hands in front of your face. You, you, you were walking into the walls, so you were just groping along, trying to find your way through the cave. We only took a short, we didn't walk the rest of the way through the dark, just a short period. And then the tour guide turned on a, uh, this torch. He lit a torch, and he said, this is all Tom Sawyer would have had to illuminate his way through the darkness. And it was sufficient. And it was amazing because of the depth of the darkness that light shined so brightly that it took us all the way out of the caves themselves. We today find ourselves in a period of darkness. A darkness that we have never seen before in this nation where things are happening all around us and we can't really reconcile them and make sense of it all. I never thought that I would go into one of my local retail stores and find clothing for children of sexual orientation created by a company that calls themselves satanic. Did you ever think you would experience something like that in your lifetime? Things have really changed, but yet there are lights shining in the darkness. Maybe you've seen this uh, interesting occurrence happening in our area. Have you seen the street preachers out? In Schaumburg, 
Dean and I can't drive from one end of Schaumburg to the other without coming across in one of the major intersections a gentleman with a bullhorn preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something happening where God is shining his light into the darkness and anyone who is willing to follow that light will be led out of the darkness. In our story this morning, as we come to this, the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, if you'd like to outline, we're going to talk about three various subjects. The first is the temple, the second is the testimony, and third is the trumpet. And as we begin here in verse 1 of chapter 11, we find that John, he himself goes from being simply a reporter of what is happening of the, concerning the events that he is witnessing and seeing to a participant. It's like when you're watching one of those newscasts and all of a sudden the reporter becomes part of the news itself. John here is going to be asked by the angel to take a measuring rod and to measure out the temple. Verses 1 and 2, let's look at them together. And then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And an angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. We are at the midway period of this seven-year tribulation period. We are right there. And we discover that John is now being asked to take a measuring rod, similar to that of Ezekiel, similar to that of Zechariah, for the purpose of measuring out the temple. Now, what is the temple? What are we referring to here in our text? Because currently in Israel, which by the way is the focal point of all end times discussion, and Jerusalem specifically is the epicenter. And in Jerusalem, if we want to declare a bullseye, it is a piece of land 37 acres in size. It is called the Temple Mount. It is where the Jewish temple used to stand before it was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, the Bible talks about a temple. It started in the form of a tabernacle as the children of Israel traveled through the wilderness. It then was established in Jerusalem through the hands of David's son Solomon. And of course, Solomon's temple was erected, this gorgeous structure where God was present and worshipped, and the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Then that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And after that, we find that uh, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua in the book of Zechariah now begin and continue the rebuilding of the temple with Nehemiah and Ezra. And a temple is erected, which is then later augmented and uh, upgraded by Herod, and this is the temple that Jesus came into. Then after that, 
the Roman general Titus came in at 70 AD and destroyed that temple. And the temple has been destroyed ever since. Does that mean a temple currently doesn't exist today? No, there is a temple. The Bible says that each one of us is the temple of the Holy Spirit. For God resides within us, allowing us to be ambassadors for God and for Christ in and throughout this world. But now we come to the 11th chapter of Revelation. And now a temple is mentioned again. But it is a physical structure. A third temple during this time will be built. And many now have called it the temple of the Antichrist. Why do they call it that? Because the Antichrist is the one that's going to uh, display himself within it. The Bible talks about this heavily. In fact, let's look at some of the places that this temple is mentioned throughout the Bible. It's mentioned in the Old Testament, and this third temple is mentioned in the New Testament. We believe that a third temple will be established in the nation of Israel. It will be one of the thorniest prophecy fulfillments that has ever taken place. But like the nation of Israel coming back to their land, and people before that occurrence took place couldn't imagine such a thing happening. How would Israel ever regain their land, which they did in 1948? In 1967, they regained the city of Jerusalem, which was, again, never supposed to have happened or take place. It was an impossibility that God made possible. And we're going to discover that this third temple, again, will be one of those impossibilities made possible by God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But those who want to say that this temple is simply symbolic, or spiritual, and it is not necessarily physical, need to be reminded of, of course, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where an event called the desolation is mentioned and confirmed by Jesus. Let's look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The scripture should be behind you. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This is referring to the Antichrist. He's going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel, an agreement with the nation of Israel. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And Daniel 11.31, this desolation is talked about again. In Daniel 11.31, and the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there an abomination of desolation. Now, many believe that this prophecy that Daniel speaks of was fulfilled by a man named Anicus Epiphanes who came in and defiled the temple there in Israel by sacrificing a pig to the god of Zeus. And we could relax with that if it weren't for the fact that Jesus himself said that this abomination of desolation that 
Daniel speaks about in Jesus' day was still future. And I say that because the event of, of Anicus Epiphanes happened before Christ. And if that was the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, Jesus would have no necessity to speak of it. But he does. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 16, Jesus clearly says to his disciples and those listening, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Jesus is saying that this event is yet future. And it did not occur at the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. So what is this abomination of desolations that is spoken about? Well, here's where it gets incredibly fascinating. And we'll be looking at it in detail when we come to Revelation 13. But the abomination of desolations is the moment that the Antichrist sets up an image of himself within this rebuilt temple and demands that the whole world worship him. And he becomes the object of our worship, the world's worship. The Antichrist wants to control things militarily, economically, and religiously. Revelation demonstrates that clearly. He will set himself up as a god, fulfilling the very inquiry that the serpent asked of Eve, saying, you too can be like God. But it's at this point that truly all hell breaks loose. And we'll discover that not only does he erect an image to himself, in fact, his forerunner, the false prophet, erects this image of the Antichrist, but this image will appear to come alive. It will appear to have life breathed within him. Now you're going to say, well, okay, I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I know that I haven't had my coffee yet this morning. How is something possible? Paul told us to look for just this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul told us that these things were going to happen. He gave us clarity and definition to this abomination of desolation that's going to take place. Mark my words that there will be those who open their morning newspapers and discover that this event is taking place before them. But he's asked to measure out this temple area. Now, what does that mean? Well, throughout the Bible, measuring in this capacity means one of two things. It's measured out for God's protection or it's measured out for God's judgment. In Habakkuk 3.6, we read, and he stood and measured the earth. He looked and uh, startled the nations. 
and the everlasting mountains were scattered, and the perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting, marked out for judgment. Or in Lamentations, we read that the Lord has purposed to destroy the walls of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the ramparts and the wall to lament. They languished together. Or in the book Zechariah, which we've mentioned several times already. In Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out and another angel coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and will be the glory in her midst. For judgment and for protection. And yet the outer courts of the temple at that time will be trampled, conquered, vanquished, defeated, or crushed by the Gentiles. Meaning that there will be a certain degree of protection, but the Gentiles themselves, those opposed to God at this point, will be an antagonist to the people of Israel. It's going to be a very, very tense time. So what is happening in Israel today? Israel, by far, is a secular nation today. The vast majority of people in Israel identify either as agnostic or as as atheist. In 2013, Fox News reported that only 31% of the inhabitants of the people of the six million people there in Israel, even desired a temple to be rebuilt. Why is that? The Temple Mound is today one of the greatest source of tensions in the Middle East. It is occupied not only by the Jews and the wall in which they worship, but also by the Islamic community. Of course, one of the greatest structures in all of Islam is built on the Temple Mount today called the Dome of the Rock. And just outside of the Dome of the Rock is the uh, Alaska Mosque, where again is a sacred place for the Islamics to pilgrim and to worship. Just last month, over 230,000 Islamic individuals made their way to Jerusalem to worship at the Dome of the Rock. They believe that the Dome of the Rock is the place in which a, I'm sorry, Muhammad ascended into heaven to God. After, of course, being given the writings that we now know as the Quran. So it is a very sacred place. The Dome of the Rock, or the Allah Ask Mosque, is in the area of where the Holy of Holies could sit. The Holy of Holies was a small area within the temple where, of course, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the temple that will be rebuilt must be built on that same site. Now, there's debate exactly where that site is in Israel today. 
But right now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm in the Jewish mind for a rebuilt temple. The Judaism today in Israel has adopted a mindset called dysphoria. Dysphoria is the idea that their faith is more spiritual rather than local, meaning they see themselves, of course, spread throughout the world, which the Jewish people are. They have raised up traditions within their faith to allow for the atonement of sin, therefore sacrifices not necessary. There are a small remnant of people who desire once again to rebuild a temple in Israel. There's an institute called the Temple Institute. Again, a small number of people that are gathering all of the elements that are needed and utensils to be implemented in the new temple there in Israel. But right now, there is very little interest in rebuilding a temple. Now, don't let that discourage you. Because before 1948, the Jewish people were not thinking about returning to their homeland. And though they may not be thinking about the temple today, it isn't going to be difficult to prompt a renewed nationalism that will be spearheaded, their identity spearheaded by a third temple being resurrected at this time. There are many, such as Dr. Mark Hitchcock, somebody I thoroughly rec uh, recommend and also respect. He is one of the great theologians at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is an eschatology expert, not only in traditional, but also in current affairs. And he believes that what is going to spur the nation and rally the, nature, the nation to a new level of what we would call patriotism is an event that will rally and bring the nation together. And he believes that that event is outlined in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Magog invasion, where Russia and a coalition of nations come in against Israel for the purpose of gaining some type of valuable, what the Bible calls, and excuse my language, booty. I don't like using the word booty in church, okay? but some kind of valuable material. Now, though that event has not yet taken place, and we don't know if that event will take place before or after the rapture of the church, but when it does occur, guess what? Russia and their formidable forces will be defeated by this small nation of Israel, not much larger than the state of Rhode Island. Today, those nations have aligned with Russia. We see that part of the Ukraine war that is taking place has created a new alliance of nations. And the last of the nations needing to side with Russia was Turkey, and they did so earlier this year. Again, the fulfillment of prophecy is unfolding before us on the timeline that God has given us. It's most likely that in the wake of that defeat of Russia, that the nation will once again desire their natural history, national history, and desire the temple to be built once again. 
And I hold to the point that the Antichrist, in his agreement with the nation of Israel, will allow them to do it. And the temple being built over the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, coming to this point where it will be there and established, allowing for and setting the stage for this moment called the abomination of desolation. We as Americans must realize that Bible prophecy does not revolve around America. In fact, America is not mentioned in the Bible. Take that as you will. What will happen to America? Why isn't America mentioned? Well, we don't know. We don't know what has happened to her. We could have been militarily overthrown. We could have been economically, uh, you know, destroyed. Or we could have just simply sink to the place of irrelevance in the world stage. We don't know what's going to happen to America. But the Bible is clear that the end time scenario is, is, of course, focused on the nation of Israel. And more specifically, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, those 37 acres that today is still one of the great source of tension throughout the world. And even though Israel means, I mean, sorry, Jerusalem means city of peace, they have seen little peace in their time. And I believe that when the Antichrist signs that covenant, they will say, peace, peace. And yet, it'll just be a matter of time until all hell breaks loose on this earth. That being said, let us always remember that God knows what's going to happen before it happens. And God is always, not just one step ahead of everything, He's ten steps ahead of everything. And in this moment of complete and utter darkness, God sets up two individuals as witnesses proclaiming God, His wonders, the gospel, etc., there in Jerusalem before what could possibly be the temple being constructed, reminding the people of the one true God, reminding them that they rejected the one who came in His Father's name but are willing to embrace one who comes in His own name. And at that moment in time, these two begin a ministry like none other. Look at it with me in verse 3. We go from the temple to the testimony. And I will give power to my two witnesses. The Greek word that is used there for witnesses is a word that is also used for legal testimony. Giving legal testimony. It was much later in the words evolving to what it has become today that associates death with martyrism. That death associated with martyrism is them giving legal testimony that leads to their own death through persecution. These two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days 
clothed in sackcloth. They're in a position of repentance before God. They are humbling themselves before God. And this period of time in the Jewish 360-day calendar is three and a half years. These are like, of course, he, he likens them to two olive trees and to two lampstands standing before God, the God of all the earth, very similar to Zechariah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. That'd be interesting. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. So God is going to protect these two in a very unique way during this period of time. These have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. These are two very interesting individuals, aren't they? Now the question that many ask are, who are these people? Again, there are those who want to simply summarize these things or conclude that they're symbolic because we've never read of anything like this before. Oh, is that accurate? I think we have read of these things before. I think that these two are the same two that joined Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. And as they are there, representing the law and the prophets, we will discover that what they are saying is calling the nation of Israel back to a true repentance. And even though they may appear to be harmed and they will be persecuted, God will supernaturally protect them during this period of time until they come and finish everything that they have been set forward to do. Now, why do I believe it's Elijah and Uh, Moses, because of the fact of the description given here in verse 6. Of course, notice, they turn, they stop the waters, the rain from falling, which Elijah did. The waters turn to blood, as Moses did, and to strike with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, there are some who believe that this is Enoch and Elijah, because neither of those two have died But yet, uniquely, Moses was taken by God himself to be put to rest. Either or, I think it is clear that these two witnesses set forward by God, who I again believe is Moses and Elijah, the same two that joined Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, are given a unique purpose to be witnesses during this time. So picture this, if you will. The temple is being constructed, and these two are out in front of it, calling people back to God. Similarly, remember with me that John the Baptist went out and prepared people for the first coming of the Messiah, calling them back to repentance. Now, of course, one was a mission of grace and peace, and the other is a mission of judgment here in our text. But in either case, God once again is one step ahead, calling his people back to him. Why? Because he doesn't desire that any should perish, but all come to the saving faith 
in Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of his long suffering. This is his love demonstrated to you and I. This is the same reason that he set Esther in the position that she was found as a time such as this to prepare to intercede and to protect his people and to save his people, the Jewish people, from the plottings of Haman. Or Nehemiah, who just happened to be before King Artaxerxes in a position of prominence and authority as the cupbearer, who was able to be commissioned by Artaxerxes to let him go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. God is always one step ahead. I'll never forget, of course, in the Gospels themselves. As Jesus made his way through Israel at that time, the people were divided. Of course, the religious leaders in the majority rejected him, but the people accepted him. Until it came down to that crucial moment that Pilate brought out, of course, Jesus and Barabbas and asked the people to choose. And when the people chose Barabbas, believing that he was going to be a quicker means to an end and an escape from the Roman oppression, that God had failed, that Satan had won, seeing Jesus Christ then, you know, sent to his crucifixion. And when they hung him on the cross, they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They joked about it, thinking that they had defeated this insurrectionist named Jesus. And yet, in and through it all, God was saving his people. So often, we don't understand what God is doing. But let's be clear, God knows exactly what he is doing. And he's always 10 steps ahead. Like Esther, like Nehemiah, we have been set at this point in history, at this time, for a time such as this. And what is that uh, purpose? Is to be lights in the darkness. As these two were certainly lights in the darkness. But their ministry will come to an end. Verse 7, notice with me. And when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this is the Antichrist, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, which means, of course, uh, the world and rebellion, where also our Lord was crucified, past tense. He's speaking of the city of Jerusalem. But he doesn't call it Jerusalem because Jerusalem at this time isn't identified as she should be. She's identified as one who is in a state of rebellion and worldliness against God. A secular city. A city that identifies itself as atheist or an Gnostic. And as these two, of course, are dead, their bodies will lie in the street of that great city. In verse 9, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. They're going to leave them there as spectacles for all the people to see. All over the world, people will be able to see through their cell phones, their computers, their TVs, the two dead prophets sitting or lying before the temple being constructed behind them. 
and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They'll be glad because of their death. They'll make merry, meaning they'll make it a holiday. And they'll send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They're going to go to their local card store and say, hey, do you have Dead Prophets Day? And they're going to look to make it a national, global holiday. They're going to rejoice because they were tormented. The word is very interesting in the Greek. It means that their consciences were tormented. Because these two were constantly reminding them of the truth. And in their position of rebellion, their position of their debased minds, it was a torment to them. The same thing Jesus experienced and said that the individuals that I come to like darkness more than light. They were tormented by these two and they were celebrating the demise of these two until verse 11. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God in heaven. Wow. Nothing man attempts to do to stop the plan of purposes of God will succeed. Nothing. The death of these two witnesses, again, symbolized the end of the conscience or the internal conflict and the torture that these individuals experience because of the proclamation of the truth. And yet God said, come up here. God is not going to take any one of us home before he's done with us. God has a plan and purpose for each and every one of you. And until that plan and purpose is accomplished, God has reason for you to be here. So, do not fear what the world brings against you because no weapon formed against you will prosper. Understand this, that God will protect each and every one of us in this period of darkness as long as we are here and commissioned for His purposes and He has still yet a plan for us. It doesn't matter what happens. We are not going to go home to be with the Lord until the Lord is finished with us. At this moment, we come to the third and final portion of the chapter where the seventh trumpet will sound. And it's a trumpet of rejoicing, and it's a, trump, uh, it's a trumpet of remorse, all at the same time. Notice with me in verse 11, now after, these, after the three and a half days, excuse me, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice, voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for how long? Forever and ever and ever. Amen. The prayer that so many Christians have prayed over the last 2,000 years that starts out like this, and maybe you've prayed it yourself. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is answered at this moment. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is now being established in the ruins of the, of the, the judgment of the world that was in rebellion against him. A kingdom that we have waited for and longed for since we have come to know him. And in heaven we see the 24 elders, those who represent the church and the saints of the Old Testament, sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come at the time of the dead. And they should be judged, and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. And you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in, the te in his temple. And there was lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquakes, and great hails. Now, from the very beginning, God has always wanted to give His people a taste of heaven. From the very beginning. And He did so in a very, very simple way. When the tabernacle was constructed and carried through the wilderness, each time it was set up by the people, each one of the elements remind them of an aspect of heaven and the throne room of God. When they finally came in to the landing which God had promised and David and of course then succeeded by Solomon created his temple, it was again God in the presence of his people. It was meant to be a taste of heaven. And then when Jesus came to his temple, again demonstrating to the people and being among his people, it was again meant to be a taste of the reality of heaven. And in this third temple that is being built and occupied by the Antichrist, a glimpse is given where God says, it won't be through this temple that I will dwell with my people. It will be in the time of the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity that heaven will be amongst my people. And finally, God will reconcile back to him this world that has fallen plague to sin and to death. And as we read these words and we hear this prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, in this manner he says, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There are some who believe the kingdom is already here. Well, if that's the case, it sure doesn't look like the described kingdom of the world. However, though, God is drawing his people to him to occupy and to populate the kingdom in which is yet to come. And that is what you and I are part of today. 
And in closing, I want to give you some verses to encourage you. It's getting more difficult to be a Christian, isn't it? You feel the, the headwinds beating against you now more than ever. Temptation and compromise seem to be around every corner. Every time we open up our phone, we are given further distressing news or maybe more temptation as the draw of this world becomes ever and ever more seducing to God's people. So I leave you with these words of Paul found in Galatians 6, 9 through 10. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. When it comes to witnessing to our family members, our loved ones, our friends, and we find resistance, they don't seem to be interested. They just push back so, you know, aggressively towards us. Let us remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8. As he says of Apollos, he says, I planted, he says, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. God just wants you to be part of the process. He wants you to keep persevering forward. Continue, like those two, to be the witnesses that God has called us to be, knowing that He's empowered us by His Spirit to be those witnesses. Why? Because the world around us is dying. People's lives are being destroyed. And as I was driving through Schaumburg and I heard this gentleman preaching the gospel through this bullhorn, some laughed, but others listened. I thought to myself, that man probably doesn't know if he's planting or watering, but he will know when he sees the increase in heaven when he steps before his Lord. God, in the midst of this darkness, is putting forth lights to shine in that darkness. And you may seem like you are so insignificant in the whole process. But when I remember that torch that I saw, that guide light, the smallest light can shine the brightest in the darkest environment. I think of these words from Jesus, and we'll close with these. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he says to his people, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen?